everybody and welcome to episode 34 of Life and Life Only. For anyone who's new to Life and Life Only, welcome to the podcast. This is a search for inner and outer truth and it's a rather eclectic podcast. The inner truth tends to focus on life coaching and self-development because I am a life coach as well as an English teacher and the outer truth is generally about alternative media and sources of news beyond the mainstream. So those two strands meet in the sense that uh, with self-development you can become very armour-plated and it will reflect how you consume the news and you receive information. But within those two strands we get uh, outlier episodes such as this one, although this is the truth as far as it can be ascertained with all the latest research of the sinking of RMS Titanic. Before I get to uh, reading an essay that I wrote about this, my other two podcasts, if you're interested, are Glass Onion on John Lennon and Film Gold. The subjects of those two podcasts should be fairly obvious from the titles. All my work can be found at Anthony, that's Anthony without an H, com. So the reading of this piece I wrote about Titanic will be a two-parter. I wrote this back in 2019. I spent the first few months of that year getting it together. And then I did do an early version, which can be found on YouTube on my channel called Contrafib. To call it an essay, in fact, uh, isn't really accurate because this isn't the length of essay that I'd like to read in a single sitting. came out at about 38 pages, but um, I am going to read it and I'll be interjecting. Regular listeners to the podcast will know that I do this fairly often with Life and Life Only. I either read um, what I consider the most illuminating parts of a book such as Emotional Intelligence or The Art of Happiness, or I read something that I've written. My website, by the way, does have a blog in which can be found the text of what I'm going to read today. I actually have a fairly clear memory of when I first heard of the Titanic. It was at my final year of primary school, so I would have been about 10. And I remember uh, our teacher playing us a radio documentary about the Titanic sinking. From memory, it was probably about 20 minutes, maybe half an hour. I don't know how much... um, 10-year-old attention spans would go for something that's not designed for children. But um, I remember, in fact, we were so entranced by it. It may have been me or someone else. We asked the teacher, can we listen to that again, you know, the next day? So my interest in it probably stems from, like so many things, uh, being exposed to it at an early age and finding it quite riveting then. Obviously, I've learned a lot more since then. But the basic story of, you know, the overconfidence and the unsinkable mantra and the gradual unfolding of this, I think, captured my imagination at an early age. Obviously, with the story of the Titanic, the main focus will be on the events leading up to its sinking, and indeed the aftermath. So this is Legends and Folly, the story of RMS Titanic. I'm coming to you on a Sunday, 6th of November 2022. It's uh, raining outside and just getting dark, so it seems a perfect time to be telling you this story it seems like a sunday kind of story and in fact the collision with the iceberg that's not exactly a spoiler alert because i think anyone over a certain age should know something about the sinking of the titanic but the collision happened just before midnight on the sunday and then obviously the drama ensued into the monday morning now sources for this the main one originally was a night to remember by walter lord And you may know that there was a 1958 film made of the same name, so essentially an adaptation of the book starring Kenneth Moore. But that book was seen as the Bible of Titanic studies. But in the age we're in now, with not only the internet, but uh, 
a golden age really of revisionist history where I think inspired by the fact that all this new information is available people are also digging deeper and these kind of stories such as the Titanic sinking and 9-11 and the shooting of John F. Kennedy and it tends to be tragic events of course um, some man-made and some natural but uh, the events are in a sense ever-changing and I find this in fact with one of my other podcasts about John Lennon the Beatles story is ever-changing as new research emerges but I still consider A Night to Remember essential reading it's just that some of the events of the story seem to have been proved to be quite different from uh, Walter Lord's book. But there's some wonderfully poetic writing in that book as well. The other main one was quite a recent book called On a Sea of Glass by Tad Fitch, J. Kent Layton and Bill Warmstead. And I actually read this in the months after I did this essay, but this book is so enormous and huge that to change all the details would have taken me probably another few months I was aided, however, in the piece I wrote by George Bay, I think that's how you pronounce his name, B-E-H-E, and he kindly went through what I'd written, which I'd based mostly on the Walter Lord book, and he pointed out very carefully and very generously the bits uh, where the events and the truth, as much as that is possible to ascertain, um, have been proved to be a certain way. A couple of documentaries to mention. This is a two-part documentary, which can probably still be found online. I will put it in the show notes if that's the case. First part was called Death of a Dream. The second part was called The Legend Lives On. I've also listened to lots of survivor testimonies and I've read lots of other things about the Titanic. Too many things really to mention them all, but those are my main sources. So let's get going. In 1898, American writer Morgan Robertson brought out a book called Futility which detailed the plight of an Atlantic liner full of rich and complacent people. The ship weighed 66,000 tonnes displacement, a measurement based on the number of long tonnes of water its hull can displace, was 800 feet, or 244 metres long, had a top speed of 24 to 25 knots, 28 miles per hour, a capacity of around 3,000 people, lifeboats for just a fraction of these, and it was labelled unsinkable. On a cold April night, it struck an iceberg and sank, killing almost everyone on board. An alternative title of the book was The Wreck of the Titan, which included the name of the fictional vessel. The subject of this piece was a real steamer, a beautiful, wonderful and incredibly elaborate ship which had a weight of 46,328 tonnes, 66,000 tonnes displacement, was 882.5 feet or 269 metres, equivalent to four city blocks long, 92.5 feet, 28.1 metres wide, and had a height measured from waterline to boat deck of 60.5 feet, or 18.4 metres, equivalent to 11 storeys. Her name, known to millions over whom she has cast a spell since she was built, was RMS Titanic, and her legacy has continued to grow over time. This is a remarkable story, and would have been compelling if it had been made up, Instead, it really happened, and it's a story that appears to encompass an entire sweep of people, actions and consequences. It could be that we are drawn to tragedies in a macabre way that we'd rather not admit to ourselves and others, or it could be that we really just want to learn more about the mysteries of life and ourselves and wonder how we would react if such a thing happened to us. So just a quick interjection there. The beginning of that came from Walter Lord's book. And in fact, I should have mentioned that I am actually including parts of prose verbatim 
from uh, these books and those documentaries I mentioned, but there is quite a lot that is uh, original to me. So yes, there was a steamer called the Titan, which was written about 14 years before the Titanic sank. And um, I don't know how easy it was to follow all those measurements, but essentially it was a very, very similar, in fact, the same weight, 66,000 tonnes displacement, very, very similar dimensions of length, width and height. And on an April night in this fictional story, it struck an iceberg. Quite incredible. It's worth listening back, or if you do happen to look at the essay, have a look at those two paragraphs again, where I talked about the Titan and the Titanic. It's really quite a mind-boggling coincidence. Of course, people might say, was it a coincidence? But um, that's for you to decide. She was the largest ship in the world, designed to be the epitome of style, luxury and safety. However, she would suffer a disaster that would shatter the faith of an age. In the words of survivor Jack Thayer, commenting on the time before it happened, there was peace and the world had an even tenor to its way. Nothing since Napoleon had really shaken the confidence of this era in time and the Industrial Revolution, leaving aside its darker sides of squalid conditions and manipulation of workers, had transformed productivity beyond recognition. This was of course in large part thanks to machines and technology, but it was man, plus women and children, who was operating and in control of it. The wars that had plagued Europe for centuries had ceased, and a new century had recently been born. This century would of course bring two world wars, the killings of hundreds of millions of people by governments and dreadfully misplaced ideologies, and incredible progress in the technological manufacture of destructive weapons. It is often said that the Whitechapel murders, carried out by the still unknown killer Jack the Ripper, gave birth to the 20th century, even though they happened 12 years prior to 1900. The Titanic sinking also served to wake people up with a start and cause them to rub their eyes and reconsider their sleepy complacency. Jack Thayer's quote ends with the musing that, to my mind, the world of today awoke on April 15th, 1912. So yes, there's no doubt that, um, as we'll probably come to later, this was the shattering of a myth of man's superiority over nature and maybe the birth of a cynical age. In fact, episode two of this podcast looked at the ideas of cynicism and scepticism and whether they were healthy or not. To help the understanding of this story, here are a few basic boating terms which need to be known. All the following directions naturally refer to both boats and ships. Bow, the front of the ship. Stern, the back of the ship. Port, the left side of the ship, looking from the back. Starboard, the right side of the ship, from the back. Forward, moving towards the front of the ship. Aft, moving towards the back of the ship. Ahead, when the ship is moving in a forward direction. Astern, when the ship is moving in a reverse direction. The Atlantic Ocean, which traditionally divides the old and new worlds, has a mind-boggling total area of 41,100,000 square miles, which converts to around 20% of the Earth's total surface and 29% of its water surface. Even so, for those who are interested, it is still a long way behind the Pacific Ocean's unfathomable area of 63,800,000 square miles, which consumes 33% of the total Earth and 46% of the total water surface of the world. Although it is nigh on impossible to calculate the amount of different species living in the ocean, the figure has been said to be over 220,000. It is no surprise then that humans have always had a fascination for the sea and the smarter among them have always treated it with a due reverence 
and an unwillingness to go too close to its heart. The rugged northern part of the Atlantic, divided from the South Atlantic by the wind-driven equatorial countercurrent, eclipses all but the two polar oceans in its low temperatures. It is a harsh and jealous sovereign, demanding of man's respect and vengeful against his arrogance. 400 miles off the Grand Banks of Newfoundland, well over two miles below a restless surface, this ocean holds fast to its most famous prisoner, once one of humankind's crowning achievements. From the world's wealthiest industrialists to the humblest immigrants, Titanic's passengers, despite containing a disparaging range of social classes, mostly had one thing in common, confidence in the ship and a world that was always getting better. Quite a rational argument when you think of what progress, in quotes, and civilization, in quotes, are supposed to be. It was an age of the soft quality of innocence mixed with the harder, more negative quality of arrogance. Soft and hard, rich and poor, heroism and squalor, the Titanic story had it all. It was the swift and sudden death of a dearly held dream. Prince Albert had said in 1851, We are living in the period of most wonderful transition, which tends rapidly to accomplish the great end to which in the end all history points, the realisation of the unity of mankind. American author and satirist Mark Twain called it the Gilded Age, beginning in the second half of the 19th century and by century's end having blossomed into a social gospel, a way of living, where man had defeated nature and heaven on earth was quite possible. Perhaps we could even outdo God. Life expectancy was rising and technology, guided by man, was seen as a salvation or panacea for everything. Shipbuilding was a space race of the early 20th century and competition for the transatlantic passenger trade had become intense. The tremendous recent advances in technology had allowed for greater worldwide communication, the emergence of a global economy and international trade, and also increased opportunities for world travel. This travel was undertaken by many for pleasure, but there was also a mass migration in progress, with hundreds of thousands of people relocating to the Americas to start a new life in the hopes of increased prosperity. Britain had long dominated the waves both militarily and with its merchant fleet, almost exclusively having through its premier steamship lines Cunard and White Star, the world's largest, fastest and most prestigious ships in the second half of the 19th century. However, a pair of German steamship companies, backed by their young, energetic and ambitious emperor, Kaiser Wilhelm II, had by century's end unleashed a stream of super-large, super-luxurious and super-fast liners onto the North Atlantic shipping lanes that trounced their British compatriots. Since ocean liners were such a powerful symbol of a nation's prosperity, the British press and public were up in arms, and White Star's responsibility to respond to this rested squarely on the shoulders of the company's founder, Thomas Henry Ismay. The White Star line had gone bankrupt when Ismay had taken it over in 1869, with a capital of £400,000. Although the Cunard already had nearly 30 years' experience in the Atlantic trade, Ismay's company had caught them up by the end of the century, when the two companies shared the pride of the British Empire's mercantile industry. White Star's first major ship of this era was the Oceanic of 1899, which was launched just prior to Ismay's death in November of that year. The company now came under the watchful eye of Thomas's son, J. Bruce Ismay, who was tasked with keeping ahead of both his German rivals and Cunard. As a new century dawned, White Star unleashed its big four, named the Celtic, or Celtic, the Cedric, the Baltic, and finally in 1907, the Adriatic. 
Each was the largest in the world when it entered service, and all were both comfortable and successful. However, they were not particularly fast, only reaching between them a top speed of 17 knots. Meanwhile, a recent rates war among the great steamship companies had affected the industry enough for American tycoon J.P. Morgan to buy up White Star and several other lines and consolidate them into the monster trust known as the IMM, International Mercantile Marine. Ismay, who now became president of the IMM, was a pampered silver-spooned boy who seemed aloof to some and was meticulous and demanding, but also a good businessman willing to spend money to improve things. The Cunard, aided by financing from the British government no less, set about and succeeded in building the world's first two superliners, named the Lusitania and Mauritania, and both launched in 1906. They were simultaneously the longest, tallest and largest moving objects ever built. They were the first vessels to top 30,000 gross registered tonnes and were nearly 800 feet in length, with the Mauritania just slightly edging out the other vessel on both counts. Their unprecedented size gave more space over for the use of their passengers, which made them as luxurious as, or perhaps even more than, any other ship in service. They had an unprecedented four propellers, but what really set them apart was their six turbine engines, where all others had reciprocating engines. The turbines gave each ship 66,000 horsepower, with the capacity for more under ideal circumstances. Unsurprisingly, they soon set world records for speed after both entering service in 1907. Like Coe and Ovette would do in the late 1970s and early 80s, they traded this record back and forth with each new journey. The Mauritania generally kept a slight edge over her older sister, and the mark set in 1909 would prove to be the ultimate. These trifles about speed were really between the two crews and boat enthusiasts, because the bottom line was that these ships were tremendously popular and huge sources of revenue, as well as crucially overhauling the speed of the German ships. I'll just pause to say that Cohen Overt is Sebastian Coe and Steve Overt, who were two English middle-distance runners, and they were around at the same time, generally didn't race each other, apart from in major championships, and were setting world records and trading world records for a while in the late 70s and early 80s, as I said. Another point to say is that um, these ships that I'm talking about, and indeed the Titanic and its sister ship, are, well, I'm not going to say tiny, but they are very small compared to the modern cruise liners. But uh, in their day, they were considered almost supernaturally enormous, and they were very big ships. Let's get that right. Also, you can see the competition which is building up and the ego involved in competition, and, and that will come up a little bit as well later on ego is certainly a part of this story which is what makes this story somewhat all-encompassing in terms of human nature and the society of the time but we'll get to all that jay bruce's may knew that his line would have to outdo cunard to satisfy his investor morgan however the myth that his plan was forged with lord peary owner of belfast shipping firm harland and wolf over dinner in 1907 would seem to be inaccurate since the loans taken by Cunard and other details of their plans for their sister ships were known as far back as 1902, including in press reports on the burgeoning ship's specifications. In addition, Harland and Wolfe was allied to some extent with John Brown and company, who constructed the Lusitania, and it seems absurd that they would wait so long to make plans. In April 1907, before the dinner was alleged to have taken place, White Star had already commissioned Harland and Wolfe to design a pair of liners to counter the threat posed by the Cunard sisters. 
However the plan evolved, one thing that was decided early on was for the new White Star Lines to eschew any attempt to match the Cunard ships for speed, and instead they would spare no expense in making the most comfortable, spacious and luxurious liners possible. However, it was clear that, even if they couldn't match 25 knots, they still needed to supersede the 17 knots capacity of their own Big Four. White Star set out to build two enormous liners, with an option for a third. As well as the business offered by the privilege, the booming immigrant trade had become the bread and butter of the transatlantic shipping companies, and bigger ships could carry large amounts of bodies in third class, known as steerage, in reference to the lower deck of a ship where the cargo is stored, and where their quarters traditionally were. These people wouldn't travel in luxury, but could, for an affordable price, still know the prestige of travel in relative comfort on the world's greatest liners. In the age of optimism, thousands of people were opting to travel to the new world, where dreams would be realised, a sentiment still reflected in song lyrics over a hundred years later. Much like the pamphlets that offered vague promises of fruit-picking work for all, somewhere in California, at competitive rates in Steinbeck's The Greats of Wrath, the talk was of this magical place where you could surely transform your life if you could just get there. Holland and Wolf's planners got to work, having to build special machinery just to put the ships together, and some felt doing this in something of a hurry to please their main investor. In 1909 work started and the shipyard was alive with the sounds of activity, first with the Olympic and then the Titanic. The third of the White Star Sisters, the Britannic, was launched in 1914, setting in motion a chain of events that would culminate in, quote, the shot heard around the world, a phrase used to describe several famous historical shots, including the ones heralding the start of the American Revolution and the one that killed Archduke Franz Ferdinand in 1914 to start the First World War. It took time in that Belfast shipyard for the ship to take shape, and for months and months in the monstrous iron enclosure of Harlan and Wolfe, all that was discernible was iron scaffolding. At that time, all of Belfast was aware of, and many involved in, the building of the ship. Overtime was willingly worked, and people talked excitedly and often about the vessel in progress. Ships were built by hand in those days, and it was a personal thing. Titanic spells starting to work its magic even before the completion of its construction. Chief designer Thomas Andrews, who had a real feel for the labour involved, would walk around with his plans in his pocket talking to the workers, and was in no doubt constantly engaged in ironing out wrinkles. The steel skeleton finally started to take shape, and when the ship was finally unveiled for its launch at the Harland and Wolfe shipyard in Belfast on May 31st, 1911, it towered over the surrounding buildings and dwarfed the mountains by the water. The rudder was the size of an elm tree, the propellers like windmills. The giant reciprocating engines, triple screw three propeller design and 29 boilers, attracted the awestruck imagination of the shipbuilding trade journals. It was Shipbuilder magazine who in 1911 declared the ship to be, quote, practically unsinkable. The main reason being that it could float even if four of its five watertight compartments leading back from the bow were flooded from a head-on collision. There were also watertight doors separating each compartment that could be closed with the mere flick of a switch. So for those who don't know the story too well, keep in mind that it could float even if four of its five watertight compartments leading back from the bow were flooded. The bow is, as I said, the front of the ship. On May the 31st, 1911, the day of Titanic's launch, RMS Olympic was delivered to the White Star Line. The two ships were considered sister ships and virtually identical, 
but Olympic's first voyages allowed Ismay to ask for amendments to be made to Titanic to increase her tonnage and make her the largest ship afloat. Other touches added were warm running water in certain cabins and cigar holders in the bathrooms. In general, the deck space on the Olympic was considered excessive and more first-class rooms could be built on some of that space. The furnishings and other luxuries made Titanic an improvement over its sister, perhaps the most significant being the two private parlour suites, each containing a 50-foot private promenade with living rooms, bedrooms and fully equipped bathrooms and costing as much as $4,350, which equates to an incredible $114,000 in 2019, that's the year I wrote this, for a one-way trip in the high season. J.P. Morgan himself was meant to occupy one of these suites on the maiden voyage, but cancelled at the last minute, fueling multiple theories which will be referred to later. As well as the 16 regulation lifeboats, Titanic exceeded expectations by also including four collapsible boats. The total lifeboat capacity was a seemingly large number of 1,178, but that number was in fact less than a third of the maximum capacity for passengers and crew. At this point it must be noted that the required lifeboat capacity was adhering to 1894 regulations, so that's 17 years earlier, for ships of around 10,000 tonnes compared to Titanic's 46,000. It was all measured then by cubic feet, and a liner of anything like Titanic's size had never been envisaged in 1894. Harland and Wolfe's original design had called for 48 boats, but when Ismay opted for the regulation number, preferring to use up space with passenger-friendly luxuries, their managing director didn't press the point. Of course, to its passengers, crew and creators, the ship itself was a lifeboat, the small boats being more a kind of public relations symbol. The Titanic had two sets of four-cylinder engines, each driving a wing propeller and a turbine driving the central propeller, this combination giving the ship 20,000 registered horsepower. At full speed, she could make 24 to 25 knots. She had a double bottom divided into 16 watertight compartments and formed by 15 watertight bulkheads. Bulkheads are upright partitions separating compartments, curiously not extending very far up the ship. The first two and last five went only up as far as D-deck, the highest deck of course being A-deck, while the middle eight only went to D-deck. It hardly mattered though since nobody could imagine any two compartments flooding and she'd already been deemed to be unsinkable. So again, for those who don't know the story too well, one of the big things is this idea of it being unsinkable. Quite ironic in fact that um, Titanic had four more lifeboats than it needed by the regulations, but um, as you heard, the regulations were very out of date. After completing her rather less than thorough sea trials the previous day, Titanic eased out of Belfast Harbour on April 2nd, 1912, bound for Southampton. This was a big event, with people waving the ship off, but laced with a tinge of sadness after four years of work for that part of the process to be over. At Southampton, which had had a port for thousands of years and whose entire existence was bound up with the sea, she would undergo final tests and then pick up the majority of her passengers and crew in preparation for her maiden voyage. The Waterloo to Southampton trains were rammed in the hours and days leading up to the voyage, and the opulence of the liner and the famous passengers only added to the prestige and sense of occasion. The great ship blew its whistle, sirens went off, and people rushed to make their appointment. It should be noted that there were a few dissenting voices who were uncertain about this huge and unknown ship on its maiden voyage, and survivor Ruth Becker remembers her mother being nervous. 
Survivor Eva Hart's mother had a premonition, feeling that calling a ship unsinkable was flying in the face of God. Following the disaster, and when all the information about both victims and survivors was made public, the sheer diversity of people was one of the things that quickly caught the imagination of even those who had nothing of any kind invested in the ship. The whole microcosm of Western society lay nearly three miles down at the bottom of an ocean whose vastness was, as earlier noted, quite impossible to comprehend. The 300 luminaries of the day dominated proceedings, of course, and the net worth of what Wall Street called the Millionaire Special was over $500 million in 1912 dollars, a staggering $13 billion and more in 2019. Among the famous names who were the pop stars of their day were millionaire playboy Benjamin Guggenheim, Mr. and Mrs. John B. Thayer, he the president of the Pennsylvania Railroad, presidential military aide Archibald Butt, and Mr. and Mrs. Isidore Strauss, co-owners of Macy's. John Jacob Astor and his wife were not yet on the ship at Southampton, and as we know, J.P. Morgan cancelled at the last minute, becoming a key part of the Titanic conspiracy, whose several separate strands included theories that Morgan knew that the ship had been swapped for the Olympic and was going to be sunk on purpose as an insurance scam, so cancelled his ticket. Another theory proposed later was that some of the luminaries, including the richest of them all, Astor, were, unlike Morgan, opposed to the creation of the Federal Reserve, which, despite its government-sounding name, was privately set up after being planned at a secret meeting on Jekyll Island, Georgia, in 1910, and has to many people had a licence to print money, as well as setting interest rates and apparently manipulating the money supply without audit ever since. I won't comment on the alternative theories now, but they are out there, and if I find a good link, I'll put it in the show notes. A third-class berth on Titanic was comparable to second-class on a standard ship, and second to first. Besides the more famous passengers were hundreds of other families with their own stories. Milvina Dean was a baby when she survived the disaster and went on to be its final living survivor at the time of her death in 2009, just three years before the 100th anniversary. She was on her way to Kansas where her father was planning to open a tobacconist shop. Also among the cast of characters for the drama to come was J. Bruce Ismay, who during voyages liked to alternate between being the chairman of the line, one of the crew and just another passenger. The captain was Edward J. Smith, 62 years old, a veteran of 38 years at sea, and continuing his tradition of skippering the White Star ships on their maiden voyages after having also helmed Olympic's first trip. One claim subsequently denied by White Star was that Smith was due to retire and would have done so after the Titanic's scheduled arrival in New York. Many passengers chose ships based on the captain, and this included Smith on many occasions. He was a bearded, well-decorated patriarch and well-loved by passengers and crew alike. However, a couple of quotes he'd given a few years earlier seem in retrospect to be omens of his less-than-decisive actions following the collision with the iceberg. In 1907, when he'd helmed the Adriatic, he'd remarked that, quote, I cannot imagine any condition that would cause a ship to founder, including this one. Modern shipbuilding has gone beyond that. Towards the end of his career, he was quoted as saying that his nearly 40 years at sea had been, quote, uneventful, never having been near any kind of wreck or disastrous predicament, and that he was, quote, not good material for a story. Just a quick comment on Milvina Dean. Yes, uh, rather ironic uh, in a sense that years later, she was the final living survivor, as I said, 
But of course, she has no memories whatsoever of anything that happened because she was a baby. But she um, she seemed like a really nice lady, and there were a few interviews with her as she was nearing the end of her life. Like I said, she just missed the 100th anniversary, but she said, uh, I enjoy it because they make a fuss of me, and the fact that I don't remember anything about the trip doesn't matter. It is quite a thing, I suppose, to be the last living survivor of this uh, remarkable story. Also aboard was Thomas Andrews, managing director of Harland and Wolf and the Titanic's builder, a man proud of his creation and dedicated to ironing out any kinks. He knew every detail of the Titanic, understood ships like some understand horses, and was an expert at predicting how a ship would react to certain circumstances. Just as he had in the shipyard, he would be found during the voyage roaming the ship, taking volumes of notes. His room was piled high with plans and blueprints, and when he often dined with the ship's surgeon, the good doctor would urge him to occasionally take a break. The vast mechanical marvel also contained a crew, many hired last minute, who were well equipped for its immense size. They mostly didn't know each other, and even experienced old hands like second officer Charles Lightoller felt overwhelmed. Lightoller was a character played by Kenneth Moore in the 1958 Night to Remember film. The deck was a sixth of a mile long, and Lightoller felt it was very hard to really know. Just before midday on April 10th, 1912, Southampton Docks was a whirl of activity. Under a grey and foreboding sky, the cry of All ashore that's going ashore rang out. On the stroke of noon, the Titanic moved slowly away towards the mouth of Southampton Harbour. Suction from the huge propellers actually started to pull the New York, docked in the harbour, away from her berth. A certain collision was finally avoided, but one passenger remarked that it was a bad omen. Captain Smith was unruffled as he eased the ship out of the harbour, but his complacency would later be crucial. On the evening of April 10th, Titanic stopped at Cherbourg in France for passengers and mail. John Jacob Astor, recently divorced and now hastily married to a beautiful, much younger woman, boarded the ship here. Queenstown Island, now known as Cobb, was the last European stop on the 11th. There, an Irish priest would happen to snap the final pictures on board the Titanic. At Queenstown, the last hundred of the 771 steerage passengers boarded. To summarise the classes, first class was literally, in this case, above everything. Second class aspired to first class status, and third class people were nothing, non-people, segregated in the lower decks and not allowed to physically contact anyone on the other decks. They were treated as cattle, if at least in this case, pedigree cattle. Some saw toilets for the first time and were generally seeing on the Titanic a different world to anything they'd ever known. Many had sold up for a new life in an unknown world, packing away in boxes and cases their worldly possessions to seek their fortunes, or at least a better state of survival. Excitement and nervousness surely competed in their minds as their dominant feeling. They came from over a dozen countries and third class was an exotic potpourri of customs, complexions and languages. The Irish Mountains was the last the passengers would see of Europe as the floating palace pulled away from Queenstown. A quick note, so the, yes, there were three classes on the Titanic and um, when I was growing up in England I was always told that there was basically an upper class, middle class and lower class and um, some people may know the sketch from the Frost Report in the 60s which featured John Cleese, Ronnie Barker and Ronnie Corbett and I'll, I'll put it in the show notes and it shows those three classes and the relationships between them. Also, as I've said, the fact that there was a, such a range of customs and cultures and languages really adds to the fact that the Titanic is such an all-encompassing story. So these third-class steerage passengers 
were at the bottom of the ship. Again, uh, very symbolic as well. So you've got the first class at the top. And of course, as you will hear later, and as you can probably guess, the steerage passengers were then much closer to the collision. For the rest of the voyage, the ship would contain 891 crew and 1,316 passengers. The officers were, in order of rank, Captain Smith, Chief Officer Wilde, First Officer Murdoch, who wrote to his sister that he had a queer feeling about the ship, Second Officer Lightoller, Third Officer Pittman, Fourth Officer Boxall, Fifth Officer Lowe, Sixth Officer Moody. He's using the word queer to mean strange. That's a, quite an old-fashioned use of that word. As the uneventful days of Friday the 12th and Saturday the 13th of April passed, a routine developed. The stokers and firemen down below sang as they worked, while Colonel Archibald Gracie and others in first class took advantage of the summer palace, including swimming in six feet deep saltwater swimming pools heated to a comfortable temperature, plus the lavish Turkish baths, cooling rooms and saunas, unheard of for a ship. Each deck was vast and had a different flavour, and a journey from the marvellous staircases in first class, built to a standard arguably never equalled in their elegance and attention to detail, would take in all manner of impressive scenery and beautiful people. One survivor remembered thinking it was all too good to last, and Eva Hart said that her mother slept in the day and sat up every night as her premonition stayed in her mind. On the 12th, warnings were received of ice fields, which seemed to First Officer Boxall well to the north of Titanic's course. The winter of 1912 had been unusually warm, and many icebergs had broken off from the Greenland course and were drifting south with the Labrador current towards the North Atlantic shipping lanes. Chief Wireless Operator John Phillips and his assistant, Harold Bride, received at least eight telegrams in the wireless room between April 12th and April 14th, warning of hazardous ice. Overwhelmed with personal messages that needed to be sent for the benefit of the illustrious passengers and which they depended on sending to get paid their fairly meagre wages, Phillips and Bride relayed these ice warnings to the bridge only periodically. The legend of Titanic trying to set a transatlantic speed record is inaccurate and impossible when comparing its speed with that of the Lusitania and Mauritania, but it was apparently trying to overhaul Olympic speed of the previous year, an example of beat thy neighbour, a familiar flaw in human instincts. One first-class passenger distinctly heard Ismay talk to Smith about this beating of Olympic speed. Rumours notoriously travel quickly on ships, and this particular one was not discouraged by Ismay. They even planned to arrive a day early for good publicity. Ismay showed, or showed off, a telegram of ice warnings as a piece of inside information and complacency was once again in evidence. The drama was poised to unfold. So the um, the two guys in the wireless room there, Phillips and Bride, they will become more and more important as this story develops. But notice, yes, um, they were distracted from the ice warnings because of the rich passengers wanting to get messages to uh, pretty much show off to their friends that they were on this remarkable ship. Sunday, April 14th. There were apparently ice warnings arriving from 9am and they continued through the day. Later, some of the passengers braved the bitter cold to wander out on the deck to marvel at the spectacular sunset before enjoying a particularly sumptuous Sunday dinner. Church services were held in all three classes and in second class, the Reverend Carter with the irony that always seems to be attached to major historical events, led the congregation in the hymn For Those in Peril on the Sea. The ice warnings collectively indicated an ice field of 80 miles directly in the ship's path, but nobody put the messages together. 
The last warning, in fact, marked out with latitude and longitude a rectangular field of ice which the Titanic was already in, the bridge never getting that message either. By 7.30pm, the temperature was down to 39 degrees Fahrenheit, not far above freezing point. The officers were aware that the ship was likely to encounter ice before the night was over, and at 9pm Smith and Lightoller were on the bridge discussing it. Gazing out into the black night, Captain Smith told Lightoller to let him know if he had doubts about their ability to evade possible hazards. They did everything that was expected of them by 1912 standards, and in fact may have reasoned that before wireless existed, ships hadn't been regularly ramming into icebergs, so they could surely navigate around them. At 10pm, Boxall relieved Lightoller, who bid him a good shift. The ship was making 22 knots, the sky was cloudless and the sea like glass. When you stood on Titanic's decks, especially with the calm sea that existed on April 14th, you could simply never believe that, save for some throwback to a previous age with a sudden attack on the ship, the freezing temperatures of the water would bear any relevance to this Sunday night for the passengers. At 10.20pm, about 10 miles away, the laden liner The Californian, a slow 6,000 tonner travelling from London to Boston with room for 47 passengers but carrying none, stopped due to drifting ice blocking her path. At 10.30pm the temperature of the sea had dropped to 31 degrees, just below freezing. At 11pm the Californian sole wireless operator Cyril Evans tried to contact a stressed Phillips on the Titanic about ice fields and was told to shut up, I'm busy. Evans was accompanied at that time by third officer Groves, an eager and curious young seaman who was, as was his custom, spending time in the wireless shack, catching up with the latest news and fooling around with the wireless set. Wireless was still at this time an erratic novelty. Range was short and signals hard to catch, and Phillips and Bride had been hard at it, relaying the trivial and frivolous private traffic of rich passengers who couldn't resist utilising the new miracle and sending messages back home to friends. So there's another human uh, foible, the need to show off to your friends. On this occasion, such frivolities inadvertently spelt the doom of 1,500 people, mostly those in an entirely different social class and world, not to mention the demise of the age of innocence. The operators, working 14 hours a day on $30 a month, were stressed and tired as the in-basket piled up with paper, and just when they were getting on top of it, the Californian, so close that she blew their ears off, with messages about ice warnings, bothered Phillips and received his terse response. Evans hung up his headset at 11.35 and turned in for the night. That's the wireless operator on the Californian. He would be awoken six hours later with the most incredible news that anyone on the North Atlantic that night could possibly imagine. Standing on the deck, looking out at the water, preparing to go to bed. I mean, these people would just have no idea of what was going to happen. And that does add a certain drama to this story because this is a historical event but it's also a story and uh, humans have always loved stories and narratives and um, as I said, you know, this is probably the closest we're ever going to get to the truth. The book I mentioned earlier on A Sea of Glass which if you really do want the minutiae of this story I highly recommend along with the Waterlord Night to Remember book. The 1958 film really does show quite accurately what was happening in the wireless room and how they were these messages were piling up and they really were quite stressed so it's um just coming up to midnight when um the event happens that uh, sets the chain of events that will end in tragedy 
By 11.40pm, Titanic's passengers were mostly cuddled up in their cosy, and not quite so cosy, cabins, while a few card players and society gentlemen lingered in the first-class smoking room. In the crow's nest, the shivering lookouts Frederick Fleet and Reginald Lee peered into the night. It was calm, clear, very cold, moonless, with a cloudless sky and the stars shining. The Atlantic Ocean at that moment looked like polished plate glass. The lookouts had been warned by Lightoller to keep a sharp lookout for ice, particularly small ice and growlers. But after an officer reshuffle at Southampton, nobody seemed to know where their binoculars were stowed. In the event, they may not have done any good on a night that was pitch black, save for the stars in the sky and the ship's lights. As the largest and most glamorous ship in the world travelled through the water at 22 knots, 25.3 miles per hour, on Sunday 14th of April 1912, a shape got larger and closer, spotted by 25-year-old Fleet, who then telephoned the bridge with the immortal words, Iceberg right ahead. Because the water was so flat, they didn't see the iceberg until it was too late, since waves need to break at the base of a berg for it to be seen from a distance. As the ice drew nearer, the ship turned, ordered by First Officer Murdoch hard to starboard, which actually meant an instruction to move the tiller, the steering lever, to starboard in an attempt to turn the ship to port, a procedure that took a full 37 seconds. It was incredibly cumbersome trying to turn such a huge liner in a hurry, but as the bow sluggishly swung to port, the lookouts thought for a moment that they might just avoid a collision. Alas not. Ice glided along the starboard side as the iceberg towered 100 feet above the water, meaning that there would be around 800 feet of it below the surface. A monster from nature. Stewards gossiping in the first-class dining room heard a faint, grinding, rumbling, vibrating jar coming from deep below the ship, rattling the silver already set for breakfast the next day. Had the ship dropped a propeller blade? To some it seemed like a heavy wave had struck the ship. A bump was heard on the opposite side of the ship from the collision by Eva Hart's mother, she of the premonition. As ever, she was fully dressed and ready to leave her cabin if required. Some passengers who knew what had happened heard a dull thump, felt the ship quiver, heard a scraping noise along the ship's side and saw a wall of ice glide by and chunks of ice get thrown onto the deck. Some on deck saw the berg in the night, but the excitement came and went quickly and it was too cold to stay out any longer on deck. Some ice landed on the starboard well deck, which was the steerage area's recreation space, and third-class passengers threw some at each other or played football with it. One passenger took a chunk to use in his highball, while many terrified steerage families carried all their worldly possessions onto the third-class promenade area. As we'll hear later, a lot of the third-class, the steerage, um, were not able to get to the lifeboats, and um, it's not entirely clear how many people were in fact, aware of what happened, and they certainly weren't aware of the significance of it for quite a while later, as we'll see. Murdoch had already ordered the ship stopped, but the engine room telegraph handle wasn't turned to stop until after the collision, and the emergency watertight doors were then closed. Murdoch ordered hard to port to try and fishtail the ship past the berg, but it was too late. The ice had already scraped against the ship's steel hull, buckling plates, popping rivets and apparently creating a large gash below the waterline. Captain Smith rushed onto the deck and was told by Murdoch what had happened. Down below in boiler room 6, the gash caused by the berg seemed to cause the starboard side to give way and a fat jet of seawater rushed into boiler room 5 with second engineer Hesketh and leading stoker Barrett escaping just before the room's watertight door closed. 
An avalanche of coal had also poured out of a bunker with the impact of the collision. It should be noted the contrast between what was experienced and known about down below and what was happening on the upper decks. Just as real life is said to involve inevitable hardship, and the tourist industry tends to want to hide some of the harsh realities of poor areas from moneyed holidaymakers, the real situation is often known more intimately by the humble workers, while the rich are the most unaware and out of touch. Some more amazing symbolism there. To the rich on the top decks of the Titanic, the collision was a trifle, a slight jar, something that might spill one's drink, but no more, while down below the workers were well aware of the gallons of water pouring in by the second. The forward steerage cabins certainly knew something was terribly wrong as well, and the collision had been to them not a jar, but a tremendous noise that sent many of them tumbling out of bed. Up top, rumours started to spread about the drop propeller blade and the ship stopping to prepare to go around the iceberg. Nearby, the Californian had noticed a blaze of deck lights showing a large steamer. Captain Stanley Lord ordered contact by Morse lamp. At 11.40, Third Officer Grove saw the big steamer stop and most of the lights go out. Not unusual, as this was often done to encourage passengers to turn in for the night. It didn't occur to Groves that the lights hadn't gone out, but that the ship had in fact veered sharply to starboard after her initial turn to port and was now stopped and facing northward almost directly towards the Californian. Passengers on the Titanic were seized with a restless curiosity, particularly since the journey had been boringly uneventful, a picnic for the workers. At 11.50pm in the first six of the 16 watertight compartments, water was rushing in so fast that the air rushed out under tremendous pressure. Green sea water swirled around the steps of the spiral staircase, leading to the passageway connecting the fireman's quarters and the stokeholds, where the boilers were located and fired. In the third compartment aft, closest to the bow and containing the cheapest accommodation on the ship, a passenger saw water seeping in under the door and up to his shoes. The post office, taking up two deck levels, had workers dragging 200 sacks of mail to the sorting room with water sloshing around their knees. The water rose up to the deck above in a matter of minutes and soon after that the lights went out in boiler room 5. On the bridge, Captain Smith, considered a natural leader and adored by all for his combination of firmness and urbanity, must have been wondering how this night would end. Fourth Officer Boxall was sent to do a quick check below but didn't go down far enough and reported no problems. The carpenter was then sent to sound the ship and emerged gasping, she's making water fast. The mail hole was filling rapidly and had already been abandoned. Ismay, demanding to be given information, was told of the iceberg and the serious damage to the ship. Thomas Andrews ran into Captain Smith while they were on separate inspection trips and they then took a tour of the ship together, seeing the water coming in at various points, including the squash courts and the rapidly flooding mail room. The working alleyway on E-deck was a broad corridor and the quickest route from one end of the ship to the other. It was quickly filled with pushing and shoving passengers. Some of them stokers forced out of boiler room 6, but the majority steerage passengers working their way aft, laden with boxes, bags and trunks. Engineers were struggling to make repairs and get the pumps going. Far above on A-deck, first-class passenger Lawrence Beasley found his feet not falling right on the steps, straying forward as if the steps were tilted down towards the bow. The ship was, as others noticed, listing. Five degrees to starboard, to be precise. So listing just means not even, slanting to one side or the other. Andrews's quick calculations, which he relayed to Captain Smith soon after midnight, reported water in the forepeak, the furthest forward lower compartment next to the bow, all three holds, 
the spaces for carrying cargo, the mail room and boiler rooms 5 and 6 reaching 14 feet above the level of the keel, the structure around which a ship's hull is built, in the first 10 minutes. It was thought for years that a 300-foot gash had opened up the first five compartments to flooding, but modern ultrasound surveys have found that the damage actually consisted of six small openings in an area of the hull covering only 12 to 13 square feet and about 10 feet above the bottom of the ship. In any case, Andrews explained to Smith that Titanic couldn't possibly float with her first five of 16 watertight compartments flooded. The bulkhead between the fifth and sixth compartments went only as high as E-deck, so the flooding of the five compartments would sink the bow so low that water from the fifth would overflow into the sixth, then the seventh, and so on, rather like an ice cube tray. It was a mathematical certainty, flying in the face of Shipbuilder magazine's 1911 confidence in her unsinkability. A little while after, Captain Smith was standing on the deck of a liner twice as big and twice as safe as the Adriatic, and he'd just been told that it couldn't float. At this point, though, it was curiosity rather than panic that brought first and second class passengers out onto the frigid deck where they chatted and waited for an official explanation. So, yes, it should be remembered that due to the dimensions of the ship, a lot of people, like I said, would not have been aware that anything was happening. And uh, some may have already gone to sleep or were on the way to going to sleep. One uh, mild criticism of the Night to Remember film from 1958 and I understand why they did this. It gives the impression that there were a lot less people than there actually were on the ship. So people later, when the panic starts, run into others almost by accident. And the, let's remember that there were uh, 2,200 people or more, that's uh, passengers and crew, on the ship at that point. At 12.05am, Smith ordered Chief Officer Wild to uncover the lifeboats, First Officer Murdoch to muster the passengers and 4th Officer Boxall to wake 2nd Officer Lightoller and 3rd Officer Pittman. Smith next went to the wireless shack containing John Phillips and Harold Bride. Phillips had become so tired that Bride had offered to relieve him at midnight, two hours before his shift was due to start. He'd just started to take over when suddenly in came the captain with the grave news. The captain instructed them to send the call for assistance and at 12.15 Phillips was back and tapping out the letters CQD at that time the international call of distress, over and over again into the cold blue Atlantic night. At that precise time on the Californian, Third Officer Groves listened in on the headphones. He was getting good at reading simple messages, but, not knowing the equipment well, had failed to wind up the magnetic detector and heard nothing. The Californian, as we mentioned, uh, again, for those who don't know the story particularly well, it's worth bearing in mind that this ship was just 10 miles away and uh, arguments have reigned ever since 1912 about uh, what exactly happened with this ship. There was an investigation after the disaster, which we'll come to later. All over the Titanic, word started to spread, fairly quietly, without bells, sirens or a general alarm, and mostly amounting to word of an inconvenience that could delay the arrival in New York by a day or so. The ladies were ordered on deck with life belts on. At this point, readers should try to imagine these people in their warm, comfy cabins being ordered onto the freezing deck for seemingly no reason. This enormous ship, aside from a slight list, appeared undamaged, and now they were about to be told that they were required to be lowered into small rowboats as a precaution. Passenger Lawrence Beasley was standing on deck before it was crowded and later said that the Titanic lay peacefully on the surface of the sea, motionless and quiet. To stand on the deck many feet above the water lapping idly against her sides, 
gave a wonderful feeling of security. To feel her so steady and still was like standing on a large rock in the middle of the ocean. At 12.15am it was hard to know whether to joke or be serious. Should locked doors be smashed open to get to the upper decks for fear of reprisals in New York? At this point it was early in the slow inevitable creep towards death by freezing water and nobody knew for sure that any talk of this sort would be a total irrelevance. That's referring to the recriminations later on in New York. As we'll see, the crew and everyone else suddenly realise that this is not a normal situation, so the normal protocols eventually go out the window, although not all of them. Some did move quickly, while others were more complacent, just like the age. Some took possessions of monetary and or sentimental value, including the famous wind-up musical Toy Pig of fashion journalist Edith Russell. One passenger took a revolver and a compass. Some dress well, including Denver millionaires Molly Brown, who looks stylish in a black velvet two-piece suit with black and white silk lapels. In steerage, the single men and single women had been quartered at opposite ends of the ship. Inevitably, there had been some couplings and flirtations during the journey, and some of the men travelled to where the women were. Into the bitter night, the whole crowd milled, each class keeping to their own decks. First class was in the centre of the ship, symbolically at the centre of things. Second a little aft and third at the very stern or in the well deck near the bow. Quietly they stood around waiting for the next orders, reasonably confident yet vaguely worried, eyeing themselves in lifeboats with uneasy amusement and making half-hearted jokes about life jackets being the latest thing this season, everybody's wearing them. Which was almost true on the Titanic by this point. Colonel Archibald Gracie suggested that he cancel his appointment with the squash pro for the next morning. Without an alarm or PA, public announcement, system on the ship, there were no words that could be clung to to make the situation clear. And at 12.30am, 50 minutes after the collision, and still one hour 50 minutes before the sinking, everything was in a state of limbo. Some passengers went to the gymnasium and were encouraged to try out the equipment while waiting for further instructions. John Jacob Astor sat casually on a mechanical horse, cutting open a life jacket to show his wife what was inside it. Meanwhile, the crew moved swiftly to their stations, the boat deck teeming with seamen, stewards and firemen ordered up from below. The passengers were mustered to go onto the boat deck with a sense of urgency ranging from polite knocks on doors in first class to pounding on doors and a shouted order to get out in third class. Back in first class, a Frenchman called Michel Navratil, travelling under the alias of Michael Hoffman, woke his two young sons, who he was kidnapping from their mother in a bitter and emotional custody battle. Second officer Lightoller was a late arrival to the drama, having woken up from his slumber when the ship hit the iceberg, but returned to his cabin, being off duty. He could hear the roar of the funnels blowing off steam and the rising sound of voices, and at 12.10am was summoned by Boxall. Lightoller was cool, diligent and cautious, the perfect second officer. There were 16 numbered wooden lifeboats, eight on each side of the ship, plus four canvas Engelhart collapsible lifeboats, lettered A to D. In total, the boats could hold 1,178 people out of 2,207 people on board. None of the passengers and few of the crew were aware of this discrepancy, but were of the mind that God himself couldn't sink this ship, as one of the deckhands had said to a lady passenger while carrying luggage aboard back in Southampton. Now, of course, in England, religion was a much bigger part of people's belief systems than it is now. I can't talk so authoritatively about the USA, 
But I know that in Italy and Spain, where I've lived, religious faith is still a fairly big part of society, but it is diminishing. So at this point, you know, people tended to put their faith in God, you know, this unseen power. But of course here, they're dealing with another unseen power in a sense, which is the water flooding in. The iceberg, of course, we can only see roughly an eighth of it. And in the night, it wasn't really seen at all. So uh, that's another unseen power. There'd been no boat drill, so there was an element of confusion. But the crew were professional, and gradually the canvas covers of the boats were removed. One by one, the cranks were turned, the davits creaked, the pulleys squealed, and the boats slowly swung out free of the ship. The going was slow. Lightoller was in charge of the port side and attempted to get the women and children loaded in. The response was anything but enthusiastic. Why trade the bright decks of the Titanic for a few dark hours in a lifeboat? John Jacob Astor ridiculed the idea, saying they were much safer on the ship. Once passengers were in the underfilled boats, they had to be lowered 60 feet to the water by crewmen who hadn't had the benefit of a practice run, and it was a nervy, intense procedure which resulted in near accidents and drama. On the starboard side, things moved quicker, but Ismay rushed to and fro, urging the crew to move faster. Third officer Pittman, not knowing Ismay, shrugged off this officious stranger until he realised who Ismay was. On this side, a few couples and single men were allowed on the boats. Women and children first was generally the rule, however. As number five creaked downward, Ismay continually chanted lower away while waving one arm in huge circles and hanging on to the davit with the other. Fifth Officer Lowe exploded at him. If you'll get the hell out of the way, I'll be able to do something. The abashed Ismay walked away and some gasped at the Fifth Officer berating the chairman of the line, remarking that there would be a day of reckoning in New York. The process of loading the lifeboats would take one hour 25 minutes in total, from 12.40am to 2.05am, 15 minutes before the ship's final plunge. The first was lifeboat 7 on the starboard side, launched with 28 on board, out of a capacity of 65, a pattern that would continue. There was a soundtrack to all this activity as the ship's band, off duty when the collision occurred, played initially in the first-class lounge and later on the boat deck. The band was the best on the Atlantic, the White Star having raided the Mauritania for the band leader. The pianist and cellist had been easily wooed from, ironically, the Carpathia, the ship that some, but not them, would be seeing again in a few desperate hours. Yes, keep in mind that that name, Carpathia. There were eight musicians in total, and the beat was fast, the music loud and cheerful. From a modern vantage point, the music seems to have given the real events happening at this point even more of the feel of a movie. Still, the truth hadn't dawned. One old seaman stating that the ship was good for eight hours yet, and inconvenience was still the prevailing feeling of many. In the nearly empty smoking room on A deck, four men deliberately avoided the noisy confusion of the boat deck, at the very stern, quartermaster row paced around, having heard nothing for an hour, before suddenly seeing a boat being lowered away. He was ordered to the bridge with a box of twelve rockets. Some watched the water rise and seemed to sense what was happening. Thomas Andrews ordered a stewardess to put on her life belt, if you value your life. The charming and dynamic Andrews understood people well and was everywhere, handling people differently depending on who they were. He kept the bad news quiet to most or played it down, but told John B. Thayer that he didn't give the ship much more than an hour to live. It must have been horrific and highly surreal for Andrews to be walking around inside the ship, knowing that all the fixtures and fittings, the magnificently ornate decorations and everything else would, in one or two hours, be lying at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. That was a certainty, 
Now all that lay in the balance was the fate of the 2,200 people on board. Down below, the door to a flooding coal bunker burst open from the tremendous pressure of the inrushing water. In the wireless room, around the time that the first lifeboat was launched, Phillips was working away, sending the new SOS signal as Bride rushed to and from the bridge with news. Sending this signal had been Bride's bright idea, as it had recently been agreed by an international convention for its ease of understanding. Phillips laughed at Bride's joke that it may be your only chance to use it. At 12.45am, the first SOS in history was sent. Curiously, Captain Smith had also laughed at Bride's joke, and the captain's behaviour was curious to say the least. Lightoller later testified that Smith had not been barking out orders with urgency and was in fact hesitant throughout. The officers on more than one occasion had to suggest to him the next move, and it appears that some complacency was in evidence, or perhaps just a lack of experience of this situation, despite his many years at sea. Following the initial CQD, the Frankfurt had responded quickly at 12.18am, but without giving a position. Later it was learned that she was 150 miles away. The night crackled with signals as the news was passed along and spread in ever-widening signals, including by Cape Race, the lighthouse which had a Marconi wireless station set up inside it. Harold Cottam of RMS Carpathia had been on the bridge when the first CQD had been sent, and at 12.25 he was about to turn in and was undressing when he decided to have a last listen on his rather primitive wireless set and received the message from Phillips, Come at once, we've struck a berg. It's a CQD, old man. Position 41.46 north, 50-14 west. There was a moment of appalled silence before Cottam, still half-dressed, quickly rushed to the bridge to inform First Officer Dean and then woke Captain Arthur Rostron. They were 58 miles away. This scene is particularly good in the Night to Remember film, by the way. Cottam getting the message. The Carpathia was an intermediate-sized Cunard liner of 13,500 gross registered tonnes and with a maximum speed of around 14 knots, 16 miles per hour. It was just over half the length of the Titanic and had left New York on April 11th on the Mediterranean run, bound for Gibraltar, Genoa, Naples, Trieste and Fiume. Her 150 first-class passengers were mostly Americans following the sun in this pre-Florida era, while the 575 steerage passengers were mostly Slavs and Italians returning to their native lands. Captain Rostron had been at sea for 27 years, but was in only his second year as skipper and his third month on the Carpathia. When he was awoken with news of the CQD, he acted fast, ordering the ship turned and urging Cottam to confirm his absolute certainty of the message. Rostron worked out his ship's new course, but at 14 knots it would take four hours to reach Titanic. Rostron told the chief engineer to call out the off-duty watch, cut off the heat and hot water and pour every ounce of steam into the boilers. Dean was told to knock off all routine work and organise the ship for rescue operations, opening all gangway doors and swinging out the boats to receive passengers. Among Rostron's other incredibly detailed instructions were for first aid stations to be set up in each dining saloon and all restoratives and stimulants collected. Passengers would be divided into classes and soup, coffee, brandy and whiskey were prepared for survivors as well as 3,000 blankets. Rooms were converted into dormitories. Rostron also urged everyone to keep quiet so as not to have the sleeping passengers underfoot. Stewards were stationed on every corridor to tell any curious passengers that there was no trouble and that they should return to their cabins. The ship sprang to life and the coal was poured on in the engine rooms. The old ship got up to an unprecedented speed, driving ahead. 
At 1.15am, the stewards were mustered to the main dining saloon and informed about what was happening by their captain, whose words seemed to be so typical of that era which would soon sink without trace. Quote, Every man to his post, and let him do his full duty like a true Englishman. If the situation calls for it, let us add another glorious page to British history. Now, obviously, there's nothing comical about this story, but that bluff belief in the, the gloriousness of... Uh, humans and society is sounds uh, i don't know what the word is perhaps a little bit quaint from uh, 2022 perspective rather less grandly rostron charged all with quote the necessity for order discipline and quietness and to avoid all confusion from now the formerly groggy men who received these orders were sleepy no more they all hastened double quick to carry out the captain's orders the olympic the titanic sister ship had a strong signal and a close bond with the titanic but was 500 miles away. However, there was another ship whose lights winked just 10 or so miles off the Titanic's port bow, and 4th Officer Boxall saw clearly through the binoculars that it was a steamer. As he tried to get in touch with the Morse lamp, he felt he saw an answer, but could make nothing of it, and decided it must be her mast light flickering. Captain Smith ordered Quartermaster Rowe to fire the distress rockets every 5 to 6 minutes, and at 12.45am, Five minutes after the first lifeboat was plunged into the Atlantic, the first rocket shot up from the starboard side. A blinding flash seared the night far above the masts and rigging, then burst and a shower of bright white stars floated slowly down towards the sea. Some of the children must have marvelled at this fireworks display, which, along with the up-tempo ragtime music, gave the impression of a macabre party. And as I'm reading this, I don't know if you can hear it, hopefully the sound is well insulated, but there are fireworks going off because um, it's the um, bonfire night celebrations. Apprentice James Gibson on the bridge of the Californian saw that the mysterious steamer hadn't moved for an hour. He could make out her side lights and a glare of lights on her aft deck and at one point felt she was trying to signal with her Morse lamp. He tried to answer with his own lamp but soon gave up. At 12.45am, 2nd Officer Herbert Stone saw a sudden flash of white light and thought it strange that she would fire rockets at night. On the Titanic, even those passengers who were land lovers understood what rockets meant and the atmosphere took a turn. Some wives refused to go, some went willingly and there were many farewells. Arthur Ryerson told his wife that we must obey orders and that I'll be alright, perhaps the only way to get some of the women in. Lucian Smith assured his wife that everyone will be saved. Captain Smith shouted, Women and children first, into his megaphone. Mrs Isidore Strauss famously proclaimed that, I've always stayed with my husband, so why should I leave him now? The Strausses had been together for 41 years and had written to each other whenever they were apart. They'd been through the ashes of the Confederacy, started a small China business in Philadelphia, and then built Macy's into a national institution. Now they were in the happy twilight of successful life and it all culminated with the famous maiden voyage of the enormous glamorous liner. Where you go, I go, said Mrs Strauss. Mr Strauss was offered a boat with his wife but refused to go before the other men. They sat down together on deck chairs. Most of the women did go, either wives or single women accompanied by single men who in the tradition of the time had volunteered to look out for these unprotected ladies at the start of an Atlantic voyage. By 1am, even the carefree were feeling uncertain. Passengers who went back for their valuables found their cabins underwater. Time was running out, and Andrews helped to urge the women to get in the boat. 
The rockets were fired and heard at regular intervals, and there was both urgency but still relative calm. Most people's growing unease internalised. Chief Officer Wild, Second Officer Lightoller, and First Officer Murdoch fetched firearms in case they needed them. So you can imagine on the ship at this time, there's just that feeling that something is not quite right. They've seen the rockets. I would probably say even at this point that the majority of people, particularly the first class passengers, would probably have felt that they were going to survive the night. Not only was there not yet the sense of peril, even though obviously Andrews and the captain knew what the reality was and what the only result of this was going to be, I think the passengers would have, if they did have those thoughts, would have probably been banishing them to the back of their minds anyway. The boats were being swung out, filled and dropped into the sea quicker now, but also more sloppily, the sense of urgency slowly growing, but still with some caution on the part of the officers, lest urgency spill over the fine line into panic. And it must be remembered as well that a lot of the passengers would be looking to the authority figures, i.e. the officers and the other crew to some extent, for their reactions, and of course the officers and crew would have known from their training and from their instincts that they shouldn't panic. So I think a lot of the passengers were probably feeding off the apparent sense that this was, you know, nothing strange. It was just um, a practical thing just to get them off the ship into the lifeboats. But gradually, as you can hear, the atmosphere is changing. At this point, the water was climbing up the stairs of the emergency staircase that ran from the boat deck all the way down to E-deck. Some passengers lost their nerve trying to climb into the boats, some shrieking hysterically and some losing their footing and falling into the boats. A shortage of trained seamen made the confusion worse, many of the best men being used to man the early boats and other old hands engaged in other jobs. Lightoller was rationing the seamen now, two to each boat. A yachtsman who swung himself down onto a boat which had only able seamen was the only male allowed by Lightoller into a boat on the port side as the women and children first mantra must have got skewed to women and children only while Murdoch on the starboard side let more men in especially if they belonged to first and second class. Sir Cosmo Duff Gordon and his wife and their secretary Miss Francatelli asked to enter boat one which infamously left with just 12 people out of a possible 40 and only two of them women. Greaser Walter Hurst caustically remarked that if they're sending the boats away, they may as well put some people in them. It is well known that none of the boats were filled to anything like capacity, and there may have been a thought that they might hover around the ship and return later, but the vast majority never did. Down in E-deck, many third-class passengers got nowhere near the boats, a swarm of them milling around the foot of the main steerage staircase. They had been there ever since they had been called from their cabins. Amid the low ceilings, naked light bulbs and scrubbed simplicity of the plain white walls, they looked more like inmates than passengers as they swarmed around, many of them Finns and Swedes and others who didn't speak English. When at 12.30 orders were received to put the women and children in the boats, they had to be escorted in small groups on the long journey through the maze of passengers normally sealed off from third class, up the broad stairs to the third class lounge, across the open well deck, past the second-class library and into first-class quarters where they were stopped in their tracks and looked in disbelief at the magnificent surroundings. While they were helped to some extent, it is also thought that the majority were, quote, neglected to death. Getting them in the boat still wasn't easy. Other steerage passengers found their own way to the boats, some barriers that separated them off from the other classes falling down, most knocked down. 
Like a stream of ants, they found their way under their own steam through the eight decks and seemingly endless passageways to the boats, now their only salvation. Some got lost and resorted to using the emergency ladder meant for the crew's use. This ladder was near the brightly lit windows of the first-class a la carte restaurant. They looked in and marvelled at the tables, beautifully set with silver and china for the following day. Some beat on the barriers, demanding to be let through, but still the regulations were followed, despite the fact that soon these rules would be rendered completely irrelevant. Think of someone probably about to die. At some point, every rule holding them back and all the preconditions of having to live in a society disappear. For every steerage passenger who made it through, there were hundreds milling around aimlessly at various points, and some still in their cabins. Staff in the first-class restaurant were neither passengers nor crew and not employed by the White Star Line. They had no status and were also French and Italian, objects of deep Anglo-Saxon suspicion in 1912. They never had a chance, herded together in their quarters on E-deck. Only three made it because they happened to be in civilian clothes. Down in the engine room there was no thought of getting away as they struggled desperately to keep the steam up, the lights lit and the pumps going. Now without wanting to... um lay on too thick the idea of the noble savage or the working class hero. I think everyone who survived has commended the work of the crew and the officers as well, but uh, certainly the crew underneath, they didn't abandon their work until very late into this disaster. And um, it was really too late for most of them. We should also note, as I've said there, this idea of following the rules and there comes a point where finally the rules go out the window. But certainly, uh, again, the 1958 film does a good job of showing uh, a lot of the stewards admonishing the steerage passengers for breaking barriers. And what about that moment for the steerage passengers seeing the first-class quarters, the the mixed emotions that must have been happening there? Because I think they all, at that point, realised that something serious was happening, but they also had to marvel at this world that, they probably otherwise would never have even seen or perhaps even known other than, I don't know, looking in magazines, society magazines, but you'd have to think they probably wouldn't be reading those anyway. So it's hard to know whether they knew that people existed of the mind-boggling wealth of John Jacob Astor or J.P. Morgan. One by one, the boats rowed slowly away from the great ship, oars bumping and splashing in the glass-smooth sea. All eyes in the boats were glued on the Titanic, Her tall masts in the four big funnels stood out sharp and black in the clear blue night. The bright promenade decks and the long rows of portholes all blazed with light. They could see the people lining the rails and could hear the ragtime playing in the still night air. From this perspective, it seemed impossible that anything could really be wrong with this great ship, yet there they were, and there she was, well down at the head. Brilliantly lit from stern to stern, she looked like a sagging birthday cake. The boats moved clumsily away, some told to make for the steamer whose light shone in the distance, agonisingly close. Captain Smith told the passengers of boat 8 to go towards the boat in the distance, land its passengers and go back for more. Quartermaster Rowe was told to send a Morse message that We are the Titanic sinking, please have your boats ready. Rowe called again and again to no avail. On the Californian, second officer Stone and apprentice Gibson counted five rockets by 12.55 and tried the Morse lamp. At 1am there was a sixth rocket and at 1.10am Gibson informed the sleeping Captain Lord of recent events, Lord advising him to keep on morsing. Stone noted that the ship looked very queer, clearly listing, and her red side light had disappeared. 
The other ships didn't seem to understand, the Olympic asking as late as 1.25am if the Titanic was coming to meet them. The Frankfurt asked for more details, and Phillips angrily tapped back, You fool! Stand by and keep out! Captain Smith entered periodically to warn that the power was fading, and later that the water had reached the engine room. On the Carpathia, Harold Cottom's set in his small wireless shack was miserable, with a range of just 150 miles, so when he stopped receiving from Titanic, he couldn't know for sure what had happened. He heard her report at 1.10 that they were sinking head down, at 1.35 engine room flooded, and at 1.50am the final plea, come as quickly as possible old man, the engine room is filling up to the boilers. After that, a deafening silence. Cottom hunched tensely over the set, still only in his shirt sleeves despite the cold. And that's where we're going to leave part one of two of this story, Legends of Folly, the story of RMS Titanic. The title, by the way, uh, refers obviously to the fact that Titanic has become a legend and this event has become a legend, but uh, folly is to do with um, foolish actions. And uh, it's not to be hard on the people involved. It's more that our society at that time, as I've already said a couple of times, had this incredible confidence and there was there is folly attached with believing that, you know, you can conquer nature and that um, the Industrial Revolution at that time had changed the world forever for the good and that we were never going to have any problems again. That seems very naive, obviously, looking back at it now. Just um, to end on a lighter note, and again, not to downplay any of the seriousness of this, but the uh, messages going back and forth towards the wireless, if you think um, 100 years later... It's almost like uh, a WhatsApp message group involving hundreds of ships and there's all these messages going back and forth and some people don't quite understand and there's so many going back and forth that often the story gets lost. So uh, really it's all confusion. Of course the big difference between uh, what's going on here and a WhatsApp group is that everything is so much more cumbersome. And again, the two films, Night to Remember and James Cameron's Titanic, particularly the second film, in fact, they show you what the conditions were like and the equipment was like in the wireless room. So things didn't happen uh, quickly. Anyway, I'll be back uh, pretty soon, two or three weeks, with the concluding part of this story. So we're up to the point where there are only a few lifeboats left and uh, I think most on the ship now are aware that the situation is quite perilous. And uh, obviously everybody is riveted to be involved in this human drama. This is something we've actually talked about on my John Lennon podcast. We were talking about um, the night that he died and then we we branched off to talk about 9-11. On this occasion, the Titanic, it is a drama. And um, I always hesitate to use the word exciting. But if you take it more literally, that your nerves are literally excited by what's happening you know there's a lot of adrenaline involved and you'll see as we reach nearer the point of the sinking this drama just increases anyway i'd like to say thanks for listening and i'll see you again soon so all the best and goodbye